The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his dues in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. So, I mean, I was doing it all myself. Presented by Crosley. Amplify your style. Here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to the best of fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace as we celebrate the holidays with family and friends. The bar is stocked. I've gained about 15 pounds already, Mike. We had some great shows on the podcast this year. Let's think back to Tony Stewart. What'd you learn when we talked to Tony Stewart? Well, Tony was our first guest, which was really cool. You know, I was scared to death. I didn't know what to say and talk, and it sounded that way, right? But... Uh, <laughs> What a great story, a champion in everything he ever drove, and the stories along with it. Sitting at the Dairy Queen with his buddy, he used to take his trophies in there, slept on a buddy's couch. He drove a tow truck. Yeah, can you believe that? Tony Stewart drove a tow truck. For That's the cool Nicholas. thing about this show is we talk about who they were before they, who they are now. Tony Stewart, learn a little bit more and check out the show. I, uh, I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana, so I, I grew up in Columbus, Indiana, which is the headquarters for Cummins Engine Company. So before, I'll kind of bounce back, I guess, but you know, the significance of Cummins was it made me a Mark Martin fan because it was on Mark Martin's car. But um, but I grew up, it was, I don't know, at the time I was born, I think there were around 35,000 people in town, and now it's about 48,000 people in Columbus. But uh, Indiana is a state that is deep in racing routes, um, obviously the biggest track in Indiana. Uh, most famous is Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and, and it literally is about an hour, five-minute drive to the house. But um, literally, there's almost a hundred. There were almost a hundred racetracks at one time in, in the state of Indiana. That's everything from go kart tracks uh, to sprint car, late model tracks, IRP, um, where they do NHRA drag racing, um, all the way up to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So. It, I was around nonstop, and uh, my father, before I was born, uh, was a, a traveling salesman. So he worked for a, a medical company and, and had a region that he had to service. And but my father was the one that actually got me involved in racing. And uh, you know, he had been in a racer himself, but just more of a recreation. He never had the budget to to do anything big time, and. 
I, I don't know. He, my dad's still 83 years old and still drives a race car. He runs a three-quarter midget in our series in Indiana, uh, the All-Star series. And uh, judging by how he drives now, I'm pretty sure he wasn't going to be a professional back then either. <laughs> <laughs> now, but, you haven't told him that, have you? <laughs> oh, every time. Every time I go there, I'm like, God, I'm like, do you realize how much I had to overcome to get this good? <laughs> to get to where I could just make a living driving these things. But my, my father was, is really the sole motivation and driving force of why I got to I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember my sister and I, uh, and when when I was born, the first memories I have of him in racing, he was uh, running SCCA, running uh, uh, Old Triumph, uh, and I'm not even sure what the class was that he was entered in, but I don't remember him running that, but three or four times, but, um, you know, he, he had a lot of fun with it, and then uh, literally, I, I remember he came home one day and had a, a yard cart in the back of a pickup truck, and my mom was throwing a fit, going, "What is that?" And uh, that's what I ended up driving around for two years in the back in the backyard of our house. And um, finally, my mom, I guess, made the decision after her backyard was destroyed, said, "This this thing has to go first of all, but either put him in a, a real racing cart or get him out of this thing." So uh, that's how I ended up in a, in a full-size racing car at the age of eight with my dad. Well, that's an incredible story. I, lo I love hearing that because, you know, we've all grown up somewhere in racing somehow. But you were just da – dad got you into it right away then is what you're saying. Yeah, and my mom was very supportive. My mom worked for a local doctor in town, and and uh, even my sister, who's two and a half years younger than me, she uh, was very supportive as well and would go to the track. So we – Literally, I think second or third year that we were racing, uh, the track that we went to first was in Westport, Indiana, about a half hour away. And then they moved the club to Columbus, to our hometown, to our local fairgrounds. And uh, my dad, I think, became president of the club three or four years or two years into us uh, being. So it, it was something that was close to home. We enjoyed it together as a family. Um, and it was, it was nice because I got to literally – it took about 15 minutes to drive to the, to the fairgrounds to race. And uh, the second year that I was involved in go-kart racing, I got the, the local Dairy Queen in town to sponsor me. My dad got him to sponsor me. But the coolest part of that to me was it was literally about a five-minute drive from the fairgrounds into town. And at the edge of town there uh, was where the, the local Dairy Queen was. Every night we'd bring about 15, 20 people in after the races. But – to me, the coolest part was I got to walk up to the counter with no money and get a free chocolate shake every Saturday night. <laughs> I was like a cool kid because I didn't have to pay for my chocolate shake at the end of the night. <laughs> That's living large, so, dude. Living large. <laughs> that was a big deal to me. I mean, for a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, that was a big deal, not having to pay the dollar. I think it was a dollar and four cents or something uh, for, a, for a chocolate shake at that time. So I was, I was the man. Well, that that's cool because I it describes I on my note here I had Dairy Queen because you have always referenced it seems like everything I've ever seen about you talked about you always are loyal to that Dairy Queen operator and I never really knew the whole story so you, you got free milkshakes on Friday nights <laughs> I I still get free milkshakes from the same guy so so literally the same family owns that Dairy Queen to this day and the daughter daughter runs it. And uh, the father still, I mean, Bob used to sit there every day. You'd walk in there, and if he was walking around, he had a wet towel on his shoulder. And he was always wiping off. But uh, he doesn't get around quite as good as he used to. But uh, there's there's uh, a table that's kind of flyers club, we call them, that show up around lunchtime. And a bunch of uh, old guys come around for lunch, sit around, and BS with each other and give each other a hard time. So, uh He's, he's there every day at lunch and hangs out, I think, till the school kids get there after school comes out. And, but literally, we, I still race three-quarter midgets at that local fairgrounds uh, once a year or a couple times a year now. Since we took the series over, we got more races. But um, if we win the race, I take my trophy there to the Dairy Queen like I did when I was 9, 10, 11 years old and give him, my, give him the trophy, and he puts it up on the counter for display for the whole year. Oh, that's that's outstanding. 
So let's just back up a little bit before the Dairy Queen. After your first yard carts or whatever they may have been, as you started racing, what was the next progression? What did uh, I assume you won a lot of races in them yard carts or won one well, or two races? What went on from there next? So the yard cart literally was just one that you just run around in your backyard. It's not one that's that's even legal to race. And then then once we got started in racing, I think the first time that that I actually left home and left the state of Indiana was to go run uh, the Grand National in Iowa. And I was sponsored by Comic Cart Sales in Greenfield, Indiana, that uh, Mark Dismore and his dad owned the company. And Mark, at that time, had been running Super Vs and, and uh, you know, the Corvette series and this and that and, and was a good race car driver. Uh, but helped the talent talk my dad into taking me to the Grand Nationals, which was asinine. We'd never went out out of the state to run anything let alone the big race of the year and uh so we show up in oskaloosa iowa with one go-kart uh, we had about three spare tires didn't even have a spare motor um but dismore sent one with us uh to have as a backup and i remember my dad saying when we left he said if we have a problem with our putting this one on there so it was like we were just carrying a motor around for nothing but went out to, to iowa and make a long story short we were out there a whole week and i think my main event uh finished at like three in the morning and by the time we got through tech and everything it was about six in the morning and we had won the race and and passed tech and we're national champion all of a sudden oh wow that, that's amazing to think that you went to uh, as we say went and raced against the big boys the hitters at that time and you came out on top so now you're a champion in the go-kart series and you're somebody at that point in that age. What's the next progression? So I, I ran go-karts until I graduated high school. We uh, we won another national championship in points in what they call the Manufacturer's Cup Series in WKA. Uh, that's running on road courses and was still sponsored by Dismore at the time. And so uh, ran those till I graduated high school and, and then got an opportunity to run what they call a three-quarter midget which basically is like a full-size midget like seen on ESPN, and you see it's a chili bowl. Uh, but a DQ midget's a little bit shorter, a little bit narrower, and they run motorcycle engines in them, which are like back when I started, they were 750cc motorcycle And uh, they'd cut the gearbox off of them and turn them sideways and run that line. And, and so it ran and drove just like a full-size midget did. So, so jumping around, I'm kind of going to jump forward for a second because of some of the things I've seen recently. I, I recently seen that they named a speedway after you, Tony Stewart Speedway. Is that where they run the three quarters at? Yeah, that's at my local fairgrounds. That was uh, I, the that was the first six races that I ran were in Westport, and then after that we moved to the the local fairgrounds, and that is the track that that they named after me. So uh, that was the last trip during the fair when I was there this year. It was a pretty big honor. My family was there, and everybody got to be there to see it. Well, that, that's outstanding. Win, win the races, get the racetrack named after you. Now we're going to back back up. You, you've, you've progressed on. You're in the three quarters. You're winning races yeah. there. And I, uh, next up. I, I had been in three quarters for a couple years, and um, I went to work for a friend of mine that had a, a record company, and he, he got a DUI. He needed some help with driving records, so I went and lived with him. And I'd been hanging around a sprint car team for a while. And uh, basically, after just hanging around long, I finally got an opportunity to drive for the guy. And uh, my friend was also racing sprint cars that I was driving the tow truck for. But we... uh, Now, wait a second. Let me back up a second. You you were driving a tow truck? What was this about? (laughs) Oh, yeah. My buddy had two wreckers and... uh, (laughs) Like I said, he got himself in a little bit of a bind and needed some help with a driver, so I went and stayed with him and his family. And so I literally lived with his his parents, him and his sister. I had a pager that I wore twenty four seven, and I lived out lived on a fold out couch bed for about six months. Oh, <laughs> you had a pager though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when that thing went off at four in the morning because somebody need, couldn't needed a jump start on their car guess who got on a bed and went and did that so that was that was my job and and uh, helping out with my buddy there but that was uh 
uh, there's some we could spend an hour talking about stories from driving a tow truck some of the crazy stuff that happened when getting shot at and everything else so it's uh, the record business isn't just nice and calm as you think it is and everybody hates the record guy because he's got to come fix you when your stuff's broke down but uh, it, it served its purpose it helped down a friend of mine and i'm i made some money doing it well that's outstanding so you're you're driving a record making a few bucks got a place to stay you're getting ready to sprint car race or you have sprint car race at this point I just started sprint car racing. So uh, in Indiana, there's two legendary paved ovals, and I think you've probably ran at both of them, actually. And one's uh, Winchester Speedway and one's Salem Speedway. Yeah. Uh, I went to a test session with the team and drove the car at Winchester. And so literally, I've never been in a sprint car in my entire life. And the first place this guy takes me is Winchester Speedway. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. which is like the gnarliest track you can imagine for a pavement sprint car. Um, and, and I did, did well enough that he decided, and the reason we went there is because the track we went to the very next day uh, was Salem Speedway for a Thursday night thunder race on ESPN. So never been in a sprint car, takes me to Winchester to test. The next day, national TV on ESPN, uh, I missed the transfer spot by one in the heat race. And then in the B main, I also missed the transfer spot by one. But I got a lot of press coverage, which actually my buddy that I was driving the tow truck for was furious because I got more airtime on ESPN that day than just in my first night didn't even make the show than he had got. So uh, the the couch bed, well, I wasn't going to get upgraded from the couch bed anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a show from back in August. We talked to Tony Stewart, and we learned so much. He's an interesting guy and had such a successful career. Uh, you're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR on the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Coming up, we're going to talk to Mark Martin from an episode back in September. Welcome back to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Uh, today, we have an opportunity to talk to Mark Martin, one of the greatest careers in NASCAR, really, if you think about it. Oh, it's an unbelievable career. I mean, uh, you know, he's won so many races, did so much influence in the sport. But the coolest part about that, he started when he was a little kid, back before kids were supposed to race. Back right. in, do you yesterday. remember the story he, he told about the first time he drove a car? He was sitting on his dad's lap. Yeah, dad was working the pedals, and he told him, "You're going to have to steer." They came up on a pretty narrow bridge, and he said, "We're not going to make it, Dad. We're not going to make it." He said, "Well, we're going to try." <laughs> well, what happens if we don't make? We're going to wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you remember that part where he said, though, when he was young, he was racing at a dirt race, and he was racing against an old-time hero, and he passed a guy he knew he was going to wreck him when he come back around, so he just wrecked him first and sent him <laughs> up the telephone pole. Great stories with Mark Martin. ESPN called him the best driver to never win a championship, but you can't argue with his accomplishments in the sport. Well, my dad started a truck trucking company the year that I was born, and so, uh, you know, he was always a mechanical kind of guy, hot rod, race car-ish kind of guy. Um, you know, so we shared an enthusiasm for mechanical things, uh, or motorized things, I guess what you'd say. And my first recollection of having my own vehicle was uh, my dad built me a tractor trailer out of two by fours uh like like a tonka truck or something you know uh so i i remember having that for uh, a little toy truck and um i got bicycles right away and uh you know we didn't believe in back in the day we you didn't wear helmets so <laughs> i spent plenty of time uh going to the hospital and getting my head stitched up <laughs> Uh, I started at an early age using my hammer for a head, uh, my head for a hammer, and uh, you know I we you know the, he he had hot rod cars and we went to drag races as a young kid and there was occasional street race drag race. Uh, he drove fast all the time. Uh, my first recollection of driving. Uh, was steering a car. I was probably, I'm going to guess, around five years old. 
I was standing in his lap steering the car on the dirt roads in Arkansas. <laughs> um, and we were going obviously faster than we should be. And we were coming up on a one lane wide uh, wooden bridge. And when we were headed toward that thing, I said, take it. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, no, you, you drive it. And uh, he said, and I said, I can't. And he said, then we'll wreck. <laughs> <laughs> and so we hauled ass across the, that bridge and kept on digging. Um, and that was kind of, my dad was an unconventional guy, real uh, wild outlaw, probably belonged in the Wild West uh, years and days. Um, so we went to uh, we, we went to races. We started going. We went to the 72 Daytona 500, and uh, that was a really big deal for us. And, uh, my mom and dad were uh, separated or, uh, yeah, I think they were divorced at the time. And uh, um so the summers of 73, my, my dad took me out to the dirt track, local dirt track and every Friday night. And we'd go out. That was kind of our time together. I was staying with my mom and we, uh, my dad would take me out to the dirt track on a weekend. And that was our outing. The last race of the season in 73, I was standing in the pits with him looking at a car and, and I looked up at him and I said, let's build me one of these things for next year. And so the way I recall it is we drug a 55 Chevy uh, out of the woods and it, of course, had a 235 six-cylinder engine in it. We pulled the engine out and uh, started cutting the interior out, cutting it out, put a row cage in it and, uh, and sent the motor down to Joe Lenati in Memphis and had him build up and build up the engine. And uh, that's kind of how we got started. The first race of the season was probably early April of 74, and I started racing the six-cylinder division on the dirt track in Batesville. Wow. So how do you think, what prompted you to look at your dad at that racetrack on that given day and go, build me one of these, or let's... Let's build one of these. I mean, you've always been known as a real mechanical, hands-on, chassis knowledge guy. But what do you think prompted you to say that or do that at that particular time? Well, I think it was, you know, I had started, I went, you know, I guess I skipped over getting a mini bike when I was 10 years old and and then uh, motorcycles when I was 11. And, and um I, you know, I loved motorcycle and I, I really wanted to race motocross and that's really what I wanted to do so bad. And my parents wouldn't let me do it. And so after about two or three years of disappointment and not being able to, to race, uh, the, the, you know, the, the motocross stuff, I just thought, I can do this. I can drive his car. So they were pushing me toward four wheels at the time. Anyway, I think I, they'd already bought me a car to drive so that I wouldn't be running around Batesville on two wheels. So instead of terrorizing Batesville on two wheels, I was terrorizing them on four wheels. <laughs> and, you know, by the time I did finally get my driver's license, I was in for a rude awakening because um, the, when, when I got them, they handed them to me, and, they, and then they said, give them, right, give them back. Um, they're, they're revoked or suspended for three months for all the no-driver's no license tickets that you have. So <laughs> I didn't really get my driver's license when I got my driver's license, but I drove anyway. So we, we kind of felt like, well, my dad always said that the, the, the rules applied to everyone else, not him. So we kind of lived by that in those early years. So I'm assuming they wouldn't let you have a two-wheel motorcycle because they were scared, scared you were going get, to get, get hurt, I assume? Is well, it? I did have, I did actually did have, I got, uh, you know, a mini bike when I was 10. 
motorcycle was uh, 11 uh in in uh i think it was about 72 my dad had a uh terrible accident on his uh harley chopper and they actually uh said that he per the, the ambulance driver said that he was dead on the way to the hospital so it was a real rough time so he had that and then the next year in 73 um, I had a Honda 500 four-cylinder, and I was, I guess I was 14 in 73, and I hit a car and broke my wrist and um, cut my leg up really bad. So we wound up in the hospital at the same time. He was having an operation in Little Rock, and, uh, you know, and, and we wound up in the hospital at the same time in Little Rock. And from that time on, they really pushed me off of two wheels. Yeah, well, that sounds like that was probably a good move, and I'm glad they did because, you know, you've uh, you continued to prosper. So after that first standing there at that racetrack, you decided you're going to build that car. You go into the winter, I assume. And did you and Dad build that car yourself, or did you buy that from someone, or how did that work? No, we built it. We built. Uh, we we pulled the car out of the wood weeds. It was a kind of an abandoned '55, and uh, we put it in the trucking company shop. And Troy Lynn Jeffrey was our main mechanic in the truck shop, and he was more mechanical than my dad or I was. For, and so he, we, first we cut the interior out of it, took all that stuff out, and then he proceeded to weld a roll cage into the car so it was a home-built car but we did put a front sway bar on it and um they did not like that they thought that was cheating <laughs> you know uh but it was you know i mean so we start out we put lowering blocks in the back uh we, we cut the front springs off to lower the front and then we put a front sway bar on it so um, it was not long before we were running in the front with the car and, uh, it was pretty tough on the competitors because they were all, of course, grown ups, and I was 15 years old and looked 11. So, <laughs> so we had a lot of trouble the first, uh, two years I raced, uh, with, uh, with the local competition and, and, uh, there were a few fights and whatnot people didn't you know that those they didn't look a lot of them didn't take it too well to get beat by this little kid know, out and run them <laughs> yeah it was it was kind of rough it got better by the by the time i got graduated up to racing with trickle and and all those guys larry phillips and rusty you know it was uh it was sportsmanship but in the early first couple of years it was pretty rough well, Mark, I remember going back to the days that we seen you at Springfield, Missouri, and you and your father had, that time, very, very nice race cars, probably in your little truck and jar, roll truck you had, or flatbed, however you want to say it, was probably the nicest going. Did you always have really nice race cars? Like that first car you built that you guys showed up, and sounds like you, you beat the competition pretty good on a local basis. Uh did you have nice looking cars that whole time the first car was nice compared to the competition but it was a real turd I mean, <laughs> it was it was really really bad but it was nicer probably than any of the competition that that we raced against but the second car for the second year uh for um 75 we built a really nice car. We we stripped a '55 Chevy down frame, down to the bare frame, and and took it up to Larry Phillips and had Larry put, you know, 09, uh, 090 mile steel roll cage in it. Our our first car had water pipe for a roll cage, so it was really heavy. So uh, Larry put Phillips put a nice roll cage on on it, and and uh, it was a really nice car. Uh, and I guess from there, we always just took our, took, put a lot of time into the cars. We wanted them to, to function well, but really look not, you know, aesthetics was important to us. We wanted them to look nice, you know, and, 
that's just something that has always stuck with me. I, you know, I, that to this day, I spend a large portion of my time, you know, detailing, polishing paint, um, ceramic coating, um, wash, you know, just that just I do that stuff all the time. So I don't know. It was just something that was ingrained in me from an early, early age. Gotcha. So if I can step back just a moment and to those early dirt days where you were having a little trying time with the competition, is there any particular story or one particular night that stood out that maybe turned out great for you and not the competition or vice versa? Is there something, just one single dirt story in a year or two that why the competition was bothered by Mark Martin outrunning them? Jimmy Lee Grubbs uh, drove USA number one car, uh, and he was not liking it. And so I passed him. We were racing at Batesville, and I passed him. Uh, and when I got by him, um, you know, he was cutting me off something terrible. When I got by him, well, we, I think we uh, clacked sides as I got by. And as soon as I got by, I saw he was he – was, uh, letting off. And so he was waiting and he was just going slow around the racetrack to like, cause he couldn't catch me. <laughs> so he was just waiting for me to come back around. So, you know, I saw him up ahead and I saw him going, I knew what he was going to do. So, you know, rather than let him run me over when I caught him, I just turned him and put him up a telephone pole. <laughs> um, because I knew what was coming. So I struck first <laughs> And, uh, of course, I went on and won the race, and you carried a checkered flag around back then, you know, for a lap. And I was carried around. I look over in the pits. There was a hell of a fight going on. <laughs> My uncle, uh, Rick Milligan, uh, hit hit the ground running from the stands in a dead run on on the way to the pits. So, <laughs> and when he, when he got there and Jimmy Lee pulled in, he punched him. Uh, I think he punched him before he got out of the car. So they had him a hell of a fight. So I took my time getting back over to the pits. Uh, uh, and by the time I got there, the fight was cleared up. So that was, uh, that was good. That's a wrap on the Mark Martin segment, fast car to NASCAR. Next up, we've got uh, Mike's brother, Kenny Wallace, will join us. The Herminator, they called him. How did he get that nickname? We'll have to listen, but it was a good story. He's going to tell us that story. Kenny Wallace is next. Welcome back to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. Mike's younger brother, Kenny Wallace, joins us. They call him Herman, the Hermanator. How did he get that nickname? Well, you're about to find out. You know, when I was a kid, uh, there was a big German man. His name was Bob Miller. Bob stood about uh, six foot three, uh, and he was a race car driver, and he became a promoter. And uh, he nicknamed me Herman the German. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Number one is I was always in the grandstands fighting all the fans because they didn't like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, me and me and our mama, uh, we would fight the fans. And then, uh, then Bob owned a car lot, too. And I think if he had about 20 cars on that car lot, I would get in and out of every car he had and pretend I was like David Pearson or Kay Yarborough. Bob said, I, I wore the steering boxes out on the cars when the cars were sitting still in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was Bob Miller. He nicknamed me Herman the German, and then it just went Herman, Hermanator. But, uh, yeah, when I look back on that, I think I was nicknamed that at such a young age that it just doesn't even register to me anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, Herman, welcome to the show. That is a great story. Uh, I noticed on social media that, that you spent some time in Sturgis. What you got for us? Give us the dirt. Man, it was the best. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 saw, uh, I only saw my, my naked people uh, with their tops off, obviously, the ladies. Uh, and I know everybody's interested in that first. That's the first thing they want to know is, did you see naked people? Right. Uh, I'm getting a visual. Saw- <laughs> yep, I saw topless ladies. I saw topless ladies riding on the back of their husband or boyfriend's motorcycles downtown Sturgis. So that that I did see. Uh, we were out at the Full Throttle, uh, which is a really uh, really interesting place. A lot of fun. 
big open outdoor place. Uh, I saw two crazies there. I took pictures of them. They loved me. We got along very well because I'm crazy too. And I posted that picture all over my internet, all over my social media. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, really, Sturgis was a great time for me because it was my first time. And, uh, you know, thank you to, to our brother, Rusty, uh, who, you know, builds custom-made motorcycles. They had a, a bike for me. And as Mike can tell you, we grew up motocross racing and riding. So, uh, But the, these Harley Davidson, they're a different deal. They're very heavy. And we did a lot of writing. Uh, I had the time of my life meeting new people. And uh, it was a great time. It sounds like it. Note to self, buy a motorcycle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Herm, out there at Sturgis, I mean, of course, we're following you on social media because we live vicariously through you anymore. Uh, tell me about hanging out with Walker Evans and the snake, Don Perdome. Right, and I knew I knew that that you liked that because uh, you commented on that, and uh, well, you know, you've you told know. us that in the past. Now you got a picture of this. Herman always says, "I know you guys like my stuff, but you won't comment on it. Just tell me you Correct. like it or not." <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. That, that, that's psychological one on one. You know, it's not that I'm smart; it's just that the older I get, I learn. It's so strange. I even asked my wife Kim, the love of my life. I'm like, "Do you ever read my stuff?" She goes, "All the time." She goes, I see everything. I said, well, why don't you like it or comment on it? Because I'll even go to the like page uh, and see who does. And, and Instagram's real easy. Mark Martin is my biggest fan, the great Mark Martin, the NASCAR driver. He, you know, Mark came and saw me at, at Billings, Montana a couple weeks ago. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm only encouraged if people like it. If people don't like it, then I just I don't do it. So, uh, yeah, brother, I got to tell you, you know, uh, Don the Snake Perdome, saved my life uh years ago you know i wasn't real confident in my ability and things weren't going good and the snake uh gave me a real good talk out in vegas and it really helped me and then of course we all know about you know the 10 12 time champion off-road truck champion walker evans and uh i got a little more therapy from those guys uh we sat down we talked for three straight days and the highlight i took away from those two were, I told them that I was thinking about, you know, selling my dirt racing equipment and racing one more year. And they both told me I was crazy because they're of age now and they're bored. So, uh, sounds like something in between brother, uh, you know, uh, maybe just not race as much as I'm racing. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot of money to run this car. So, uh, they gave me some great advice and, uh, you know, the snake told some great stories about his career, and I was glued to everything he said. And uh, I really enjoyed myself sitting around every night when we would get back from a ride and listening to their stories. Well, that's incredible. The one question, and we're going to make this quick, though. You just talked about it taking so much money to run that dirt car, you know, because right. you always say I'm wore out, I'm tired or whatever, but you race. Your and I know that aggravates you. No, no, it, it doesn't you. aggravate me at all. I love it. But what I do want to know, because, you know, we've been watching some spectacular stuff with Kyle Larson and he's nicknamed Young Money, but you're nicknamed NASCAR Money. Right. So, <laughs> so, so you should have plenty to race that car off of. So it's true. I am very wealthy. I have a lot of money put away. Um, I, I actually, I haven't. So, you know what happened now let's do the backstory on this so we can have fun with it. Uh, that's where this all started. So, uh, somewhere along the line, when I was racing my dirt car, you have a handful of people that said, well, the only reason Kenny Wallace does good is because he has that NASCAR money. And they've been saying it for 10 years. And I finally just decided to shove it right up them. And uh, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them what they want. And I'm going to talk about how much money I got. I'm so wealthy. I don't know what to do with all my money. Uh, actually, I need a truck. I got this truck that I put all my money in. <laughs> so so it, it has, honestly, my hand on a Bible, it has absolutely worked out to my benefit. Every time I go to drive somebody else's race car, 
they all got these decals above my name saying NASCAR money. NASCAR <laughs> money. So, so it's 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 actually, you know, brother, you know the way it goes. The best plans are the ones that are not planned. So, we just been having a really good time, and so is everybody else because, in reality, NASCAR money is the same thing as if you have a tree trimming money money. You know, let's say you got a tree trimming business. Well, then all of a sudden you're illegal because you you have tree trimming money. And if you're a plumber and you got a plumbing business, you're illegal because you got all that plumbing money. So <laughs> all the business people just love me. I got all these guys that do real good financially, and they go, "Boy, we know exactly what you're talking about." It's like you're illegal if you race and have a sponsor. So uh, we've just had a good time with it. All right. Well, in this first segment, we've changed up a lot. Normally, we're hearing about old-time stuff, but we're a bit till, till the break. I want to hear and tell everybody what you are doing on a, a weekly, bi-weekly, all the racing you're doing, because you're doing a diverse amount of different things besides going to things like Sturgis and that. Tell us a little bit about uh, what the race world for Kenny the Herminator is doing. Well, my life has changed for the best. I'm as happy as I've ever been, brother. Uh, I'll be 58 next week, or I'll be 58 on August 23rd, excuse me. Happy so, birthday. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it, 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 you know, I'm so honest. You know, I've learned that if I tell people exactly the truth, it, it seems that I've learned that it helps people because we all think that sometimes, you know, we're on this island by ourselves. But to be honest, I have found absolute happiness and truth. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, it's, it was 56 years old that I found peace with myself. And um, so what that means is, uh, you know, brother, here's what I've been doing. I, I, I got a good friend named John Scatoni. John is a great pilot. Uh, he flies one of those Cirrus airplanes. We've been to the Grand Canyon. We've been to Alaska. Uh, we just went to Sturgis. Uh, and, you know, be between, you know, going to the Bahamas every year and cruise ships with my wife and family, uh, you know, I I'm racing the dirt car when the weather's good in the middle of the summer. Uh, I, I try to categorize my life. In other words, uh, the winters are really long. Uh, you know, winter for me is five months long, and uh, the summer seemed too short. So I feel like the older I get, I want to get it while the getting's good. And um, I've just been having a really good time with my life the last two years. Um, I feel like that nobody can eat me anymore. You know, my whole life I felt like that somebody could get me, that I would be poor. I'd live under a bridge in a cardboard box. And uh, <laughs> so they can't get me anymore, you know. And, uh, and that's the best feeling ever. Well, since we're both experiencing something and we're coming to the end of this break in a few minutes, tell me about the whole grandfather world. We're all grandparents now, and yep. I watch you all the time on, on your social media, and i seen the grandkids while we were in Tri-City a while back. Uh, what's that like? Well, I'm a kid myself, so, uh, you know, as our mama, Judy, would say, uh, mom thinks that uh, I've been – mom thinks this is my – second time on earth like i've been reincarnated uh, mom says that when we would you know when i would go places like a grocery store that the, you, the kids would always stare at me and i just i love kids um they make me happy uh, they're innocent and my four grandbabies are the love of my life uh if they come into my race shop i literally on purpose uh stop what i'm doing and give them all the time in the world because I truly feel like that that's the legacy that we will leave is, is those babies remembering how much we love them and what we could do, you know, for them. So uh, Charlotte, our oldest one, is five years old. She's starting kindergarten. That's a big deal. And uh, I, I got back about one in the morning from a dirt race, and my wife woke up, Kim, and she said, oh, my God, you got to read this text. And it was so sad. Our grandbaby said to our daughter, said, uh, Mom, am I not going to be able to see Grammy anymore since I am going to school now? And, and our, our daughter said, no, Charlotte, you're going to see Grammy all the time on the weekends. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want to disappoint these babies. And we got Charlotte. We got Mila. We've got uh, Jade. And our only boy is Jet. So, uh, you know, I, I want to help make life easier for them. And, uh, you know, that's that's what I love. I love them so much. So, so is it true that you take them to Chick-fil-A and you just stick them in the bouncy balls and go eat your sandwich <laughs> and leave them alone? <laughs> It, 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 it is true, but that was pre-coronavirus. <laughs> and, and I swear to God, that's accurate. So uh, when they were really babies, like two, three years old, we'd go to Chick-fil-A. Uh, and I was going on Tuesdays. And I, it's funny because that's when we would get the kids on Tuesday and Wednesdays. Little did I know that Tuesdays at Chick-fil-A here in Arnold, Missouri, is Senior Citizen Day. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the, the old people would come into Chick-fil-A and get their free grilled chicken sandwich. It's so damn funny. <laughs> what day of the I'm week like, is that know, again? I got to write that down. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, in, <laughs> it, it's, it's in the town that, that Mike and, and Rusty and myself grew up in, Arnold, Missouri. But, but once again, that was pre-coronavirus. And, uh, yes, I would take the kids because they – they called it Chick-a-Lay. <laughs> Chick-a-Lay. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that is, hey, listen, I, I'm not perfect by any means. And, uh, e e you know, as hyper as I am, I, I pay attention to them grandbabies as much as I can. But every once in a while, uh, Poppy deserves a break. And we go to Chick-a-Lay and I throw them in the, in the bouncy ball. Chick-a-Lay. <laughs> That's a wrap on the Kenny Wallace segment. Fast card and ass card coming up in our next Former NASCAR president Mike Helton joins us. What have you wanted to know about NASCAR all these years? You're going to find out. Welcome back to Fast Car to NASCAR. We're celebrating the holidays, kind of doing a best of here. Mike Helton joined us back in October. One of the things we learned is that Mike started his career in Bristol, Tennessee. He was a sports guy at a radio station, of all things. But you talk about a veritable who's who in NASCAR. When we talked to Mike, it was name after name after name. Well, Mike Helton is so influential in the sport of NASCAR racing, and he is still, even though he's not the president today, He's still the man. Listen in on how he rose to prominence within NASCAR. I think he became the first to run the sport outside of the France family. Correct. But he went from Bristol to Talladega to Atlanta to Daytona. And, well, you'll hear the stories. Well, you even if you were on the periphery of, of following short track racing and then NASCAR as it was growing, uh, Bristol kind of put it, in front of everybody in southwest virginia and east tennessee and i just happened to be one of those that enjoyed racing as i was growing up and and the thrill of something with a motor in it that would go fast and and when the track came about in bristol and you got exposed to what it looked like in real then then i was hooked you know from from that moment on and and i don't know that i had a um, a, a, a pathway that, that I thought I should follow. I just got caught up in the sport and had some opportunities. I was very lucky along the way, and most of that resume that, that Jeff spilt through there on the intro and everything, that was just being at the right place at the right time. So I didn't have any self-designs growing up in Bristol to, to end up doing what I did throughout my life, but it really worked out good for uh, one of the one of the luckiest race fans in the country. Hmm. Mike, I, I see that you may have started out in, in broadcasting. Is that correct? Was it radio or TV or? <laughs> it was radio, but I I wouldn't call it broadcasting because I've I don't, <laughs> I've got a radio I've got a radio face, but I don't have I much of a say, radio People voice, have told but... me that my whole life, Jeff. You've got a face for radio, son. Good job. But I, I, there, there was a there was a gig in there with WOPIEM in, in Bristol, where and they carried all the races. And then back then, the races were Universal Racing Network, and and uh, then along come Motor Racing Network, and then different groups that would broadcast the races and. And uh, WOPI carried them there locally in, in Bristol, and I kind of had a short gig there with them. But but I I never put radio broadcasting on my resume anywhere because I don't want to make all the <laughs> real radio people mad. <laughs> well, the one thing I've heard lately is that radio face. So uh, you, you're doing well with that. There's no money. There's no money in radio anyway. Is it? <laughs> 
so mike you you grew up in the virginia area the bristol area how, how did you end up getting to atlanta motor speedway i know you said you had a passion for motorsports yep. and loved it but you know i you mentioned you were at the right place right time lucky however you you, you had the stars aligned for your career it looks like and so we're in bristol how do you get to atlanta motor speedway so in, in that era in the 70s um a cup track like bristol was 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 a lot like a weekly track today where the you know you you had special events which happened to be the cup races around bristol there and uh but but you, you didn't do a lot of work in between them you, you got ready for them you ran the weekend you got cleaned up from the weekend and then the track would sit there until the next special race well or special event so as 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 i got older and and was so drawn by the racetrack i'd go down and hang out and i'd help different people that that had the track larry carrier was a friend of my father's and when he and carl built bristol originally my father would go down there and and he was in the agricultural supply business but he would be selling limestone and different things to the contractors that were building the track and me and my older brother would ride down with him and we'd hang out. So that's, I thought it was amazing watching them build the track and the track was compared to today's Bristol that we raced at a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was really simple. A uh, couple of concrete uh, bench like bleach bleachers on both sides of the front stretch and back stretch. And, and so it was very simple back then. But as the sport grew and I was getting older and I started following the sport more by getting a chance to go to Richmond or Martinsville or down to Charlotte from Bristol. And I, I just got more and more caught up in it. And, and I would help the folks, different people at the racetrack over a period of time, including going back to Ed Clark and Eddie Gossage, um, and I would help out at race time. Uh, I might be two weeks before, you know, we didn't have weed eaters back in. So you had to figure out how to get rid of the weeds and, and make sure all the trash was picked up from the last one and everything. And then you'd paint and then get it all spruced up because you're going to have some folks come in. You wanted to be impressive. And, and then on race weekend, I'd help out. I'd help uh, different groups, uh, uh, Ed Clark and Eddie at the, the end there at, uh, in the press box in different places. And I got introduced by Tom Roberts, uh, TRPR out of Birmingham that worked at Atlanta Raceway. And he was going to go back to Birmingham and and do some uh, stuff on his own. And, and he introduced me to Walt Nix, who owned half of Atlanta Raceway back then. And Walt and I struck up a conversation. And before I knew it, I put everything I owned in Bristol in the back of my car and drove to Atlanta and went to work for Atlanta Motor Speedway, which was Atlanta International Raceway back in AIR. And uh, that was at the turn of 79 and 80. And then I started working full-time at Atlanta and worked my way up to general manager by the mid-80s. And um, I just I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Now, now I do have to back up just for a second. Did you actually run a weed eater and use a paintbrush? <laughs> yeah, because that, that I'm having a hard time visualizing that. <laughs> I, I, I used a paintbrush, but we didn't have weed eaters back then. I don't think they were invented when we were pulling weeds by hand. Oh, okay. I okay. mean, it's called the, round the up. That was growing <laughs> between the. No, it was it was hand up. It was. Uh, it, 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 you didn't have all the technology. Now I did use a weed eater in Atlanta, because even in the early '80s in Atlanta, it it took everybody. It was all hands on deck, and you had to you had to get ready for a racetrack. And and I thought Bristol was. Uh, quite the spectacle to, to get up and running but atlanta was a mile and a half uh track and it took a whole lot more work to get ready cutting grass and painting walls and and but that's where i got introduced to weed eaters and i thought that was the greatest invention that came along since peanut butter when i first got to use a <laughs> weed eater so i'd do it by hand so. Some of the names you'd mentioned there, Larry Carrier, that uh, built the Bristol Motor Speedway, and then you most recently mentioned TR, Tom Roberts from the PR. Tom Roberts was doing what? How did you get hooked with him? I, I know Tom just from the days he was the PR guy for Rusty Wallace. I didn't know he went back what yeah. I call that far. So that uh, intriguing to me. So, so 
Yeah, Tom Tom was connected in Nashville. Uh left Nashville and when I say connected in Nashville when NASCAR was running the Nashville Fairgrounds and different people would have lease at the fairgrounds and Tom was was in that mix and that's where he got to know Ed Clark and Eddie Gossage. Eddie Gossage was also from Nashville. Ed Clark was on the Virginia side so he he was in Bristol, Eddie Gossage was in Nashville and there was a moment in the history of Bristol that Bristol was directly connected to Nashville Fairgrounds, which seems ironic since Bristol's now the machine that's trying to put the fairgrounds back on the map. But uh, Larry and Carl Moore sold the Bristol track to Gary Baker and a guy by the name of Lanny Hester, and they had the fair board or the fair agreement to run those sports events at the fairground in Nashville. So Tom come out of Nashville, and he ended up going to Atlanta at full time, and he wanted to kind of go back. I said uh, Birmingham, but uh, I meant go back to Nashville and 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 go back into the mainstream. And he ended up the way he ended up with Rusty Wallace was Tom ended up with Miller Brewing when their motorsports program, um, and and Miller was doing so much in both NASCAR and IndyCar and IMSA. Uh, Tom went. Tom started contracting with him, doing the PR, and then he got hooked hooked up with Rusty along the way. Uh, but there's so many names in that era that that I enjoy sitting around talking to folks that are as old as I am about and all the different personalities and incredible personalities, just like there are today. But there was some back then that that truly laid the groundwork on the sport that we know it to be today. Uh, give me one name since you just said that one name that pops out of your head over everybody at that time, maybe not over everybody, but was, was one of the ground layers for the sport because I'm one of the guys that were happy to be involved in something that had been built by a previous group of people who, who is a, uh, as your day, as you're coming through that, who was who a major name? Yeah. And I don't know that I could name one. And okay. let me try to explain why, because, in that era, most tracks were independently owned. So we, we, we look around today and we look at the schedules and I don't care if it's NASCAR Cup or Xfinity Trucks or Open Wheel, IndyCar, what have you. Most facilities today are part of a larger group. NASCAR owns its own racetracks, Speedway Motorsports, the Smith family owns a large group. So there's, there's multiple facilities in an owner's group today. But in the 70s and 80s, most tracks were individualized. So Bristol was Larry Carrier and Carl Moore. Martinsville was the uh, uh, Campbell family. Sawyers ran Richmond. Uh, Enix Staley and, and Combs had North Wilkesboro. Uh, so uh, Walt Nix and L.G. DeWitt had Atlanta, but L.G. DeWitt also owned Rockingham. So most of these tracks were had their own individual culture, so to speak, to their ownerships. And and so I think that whole group of those names that I just went through were ones that that particularly the group out of North Carolina that helped establish NASCAR's roots and foundation that gave it the ability to grow what it was. Obviously the France family built Daytona in the late fifties. Uh, and then they ended up building Talladega 10 years later. Uh, and then there was a swing where there there was a, a moment where di- people were building different facilities, whether it was Atlanta, Michigan, College Station, Texas, Riverside, and different facilities that NASCAR got to grow on the shoulders of all of those developments. And they were all driven by different personalities. So when you ask me to pick one, from that era that's why i can't just pick one because i obviously i was heavily influenced by larry carrier and carl moore there in bristol but but just equally i think the whole sport and as we get to pay tribute now through hall of fame programs of people that truly built this sport there's a list that i can't do on two hands worth of fingers i got you that's that's amazing i'm glad you you made that so uh aware to me i didn't realize you know sometimes when you think about nascar you just think about the france family because that's what we're you know kind of brought up around but i love hearing the stories about these pre what do you call them, track owners promoters that they, they really helped guide the sport early on then what you're saying compared 
Mike, but, com- compared to to the way things used to be, you you mentioned so many track owners. How many how many different track owners are there now? Has it consolidated some? Well, when you look at a, a NASCAR national schedule, uh, let's take the Cup for example, because it's 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 the NASCAR tracks, the Speedway Motorsports tracks, and then Dover Entertainment has Dover, the Mattioli family has Pocono, and and now Roger Penske has Indianapolis. So you can literally count the Cup schedule facilities on on one hand now. As Ben kind of modifies our opportunities and schedules, and you you look at different opportunities like uh, WWR at Gateway and and uh, the LA Stadium, that spreads out a little bit. But we're we're more used to in the last 20 years of of, of a small group of owners that have most of what we race on. That's our show with Mike Helton. You've been listening to the best of Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. It's been a great year. It's going to be a happy new year, hopefully, Mike. I hear it's going to be a dirty new year for you. It is, but I want to say thank you, Jeff Kent, for being part of this show. This has been wonderful. But, yeah, dirty new year. I'm going to, along with my brother Kenny, Kenny Schrader, we're going to Cocopa Speedway in Yuma, Arizona on January 4th. The whole thing goes from January 4th through, like, the 15th. I'm going to be there the 4th through the 9th. It's going to be able to be seen on IMCA TV, and they're a member of the Speed Sport Network, like we are. Our family. Yeah, so Cocopa Speedway. Everybody that's wanting to have a great time, it's right on the Mexican border. So we're going to have a fun uh, – we're meeting the sheriff out there and going to run some border runs. So runs. chances are you won't see Kamala Harris. <laughs> Pretty good chance, but we got uh, we got a great racetrack. we got a casino. we got a lot of fun going on, so – Come join us. I'm going to be racing an IMC stock car out there. Well, that's going to wrap up the best of Fast Car to NASCAR. We sincerely hope you and your friends and family have a very happy holiday season. Happy New Year. We look forward to seeing you once again on the show in 2022. This is Fast Car to NASCAR on the Speed Sport Podcast Network.